Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for being here t- tonight. And it's a great honor and pleasure to be at NYU Abu Dhabi for this uh, lecture, this talk. Thanks so much, uh, dear for those kind words. And it's, it means a lot, uh, especially from an old friend um, who himself has excelled in both academia and institution building, first at Sciences Po and and now at NYU Abu Dhabi, and it's very important to to actually build institutions which are going to face this challenge that we're all going to face in the next uh, uh, years and decades. Um, so in any case, thanks a lot for the invitation, and I would like to um, discuss a number of topics uh, which have to do with uh, what's going to happen with the new economy, the digital economy, and this upheaval in many, many dimensions, the world is going to be completely di- different from, from the past in terms of education, health, jobs, financial systems, consumer products and services, the po- functioning of political life and many other things. And every time there's a hope for a better world, and every time there's also a danger that things might go wrong. And I'm, and I'm optimistic, so I think that things will go for the better, but we have to be aware that if we don't do what it takes to make it a better world, then it's going to just go pretty, pretty wrong. So let me just mention what I'm going to discuss. So I want to speak for about an, one hour, and then I look forward to the exchange we are going to have together. So we are going to discuss the challenge of wealth creation and starting with the issue of monopoly um, and various policies that we may adopt in reaction to those monopolies. Then I'll talk about privacy and data ownership, the future of labor, um, and probably around 11 p.m. or midnight will reach uh, inequality, taxation, politics, and so on, So, which means that I won't have time to discuss them, but we can possibly... Uh, um, start the discussion during the, the Q&A part. Um, so that will be the outline. I have to warn you, we know very little. It's very surprising in a sense that we are so close to a big revolution in all those dimensions. And still, you know, we know so very little and that will be kind of obvious in my, in my lecture. So let me start first with the wealth creation challenge. And, you know, basically trying to understand this and its implication. So you may know that today, the seven largest firms in the world and most of the largest startups in the world actually are multi-sided platforms. There are platforms which try to attract several sides of the market, for example, two sides, buyers and sellers, while basically achieving, performing a balancing act and trying to break even and make money out of it. So we are well accustomed to the kind of platforms we we have. Um, For those of you who are playing video games, we we are playing uh, with the 
PlayStation or the Xbox. But for Sony or Microsoft, actually, to make a profit, they have to attract both gamers who are going to buy the console and going to buy games, you and me, and also uh, game developers. And that's pretty much the case for many things. Google is trying to attract advertisers and eyeballs at the same time. Visa, MasterCard, Google Pay, or PayPal are going to try to attract both cardholders and merchants who are going to accept the card. And if you think about Uber, Airbnb, and so on, they are going to attract, for example, drivers and also uh, people who are going to take the cab. Now, there are two types of platforms, just to simplify. The first kind is a matching platform. Nowadays, we, we live in the economics of attention. In the past, we were confined to our village you know, we had very limited choice for trade, for dating, for matching in general. Um, we had very little choice. Now we have too much choice. We have the entire world at our disposal. But of course, there is very little information we have about this world. And those platforms actually connect you. And they try to match you to, as well as to solve this issue of economics of attention both in terms of what we economists call horizontal attributes. So tastes differ. It's not that there are some products or some people who are better than others. It's just different people. Or vertical attributes, which have to do with quality or reliability. So using kind of personal data and data supplied by, by other users to predict the match between you and a movie, between two people, or just trying to... Uh, preserve quality through ratings, and we get lots of those examples. Those are matching platforms. We also have technological platforms um, we, where the interaction already exists, um, but you, know, you try to make it better somehow. That's often the case with credit card, for example. You know, it's just a better interaction than using cash. Or same thing uh, with other platforms. Uh, like Skype or Zoom, or we are, we are able to better connect, um, but the interaction already exists. Now, in terms of the choice of business model that has been studied for now quite a while, about 15 years, um, and the ideas are pretty simple. And for non-economists, you are going to say, well, did you need one century to find this out? But, you know, the ideas are pretty simple. The idea is that you... You want, just like any business, account for the elasticity of demand. What is the elasticity of demand? Is how many consumers you get, you lose when you increase your price by 1%. Okay? So you raise your price, how many, how many users do you lose? That's the elasticity of demand. It's an abstract concept, but any business person uses it, uses it every day. Because, of course, you have to always make a choice when you set your price uh, to understand how many customers you're going to lose. That's all fine in a one-sided market. Now, you have a two-sided market, for example, or multi-sided markets, and you have to attract people on multiple sides. And the big novelty of this multi-sided market is that you have some kind of externality between those sides. So advertisers who pay a lot of money to Google or Facebook actually do it because they find interesting people who are going to buy their goods and services on Google and Facebook 
held by very uh, fine algorithms uh, which target the advertising to the people who might be interested in those goods and services. And there is a new thing in the, in the picture than in the equation, which is the externality cross-sites. Um, so, for example, if you as a customer, you're using Google or you're using Facebook, you have high value to the advertiser. But the reverse is not true. You may or may not care about advertising. You may have a positive or negative valuation for advertising. But, you know, by and large, it's really the advertiser who cares about you. And therefore, it's going to have a deep impact on how you structure prices. And what you learn from doing the mathematics also, what they have learned over time, because you know, those two-sided platforms are not new, and I'll give you some old examples in a minute, uh, what you learn is that they, they learn on, on which price they should be charging. You know? and, and the price structure which results, or the allocation between the two sides, has nothing to do with fairness. It has to do with getting all the sites on board. Uh, so there's no notion of fairness. It's, uh, it's about basically trying to balance. And very often you end up with a very unbalanced pricing structure. So um, one price will be a very low price side and the other one will be a very high price side. So I gave you the example of Google and Facebook, which make, for the moment, they make most of their money through advertising. And they... You know, you get all those services from Google, for example, which are wonderful services for free. But of course, uh, what happens is that Google charges very high prices and make a, makes a huge amount of money through advertising. Okay. And this is a common thing. So if you are a cardholder, often, I don't know, I don't know in Abu Dhabi, but you know, in, in many countries, you actually don't pay for your card. You don't pay for using your card. And sometimes you are even paid for using your card. You may get cashback bonuses, you may get frequent flyer miles and so on. And that's one of the rare cases actually where you get a negative price for consuming a good, which is a card services in, the, in this example. Um, so it's often the case that on one side you have a price which is actually below cost, uh, below incremental cost. That has been true for a long time. Newspapers often are pretty cheap compared to the production and distribution cost. Sometimes they're even free. Um, often it's even a zero price. It's actually a corner solution because you cannot charge, in many cases, you cannot charge negative prices. Actually, it started in the 1950s. So payment cards started in New York just for restaurants on the Upper, upper East Side. And Diners Club actually charged 10% to the restaurants and the customer were charged nothing. And it has been going on for a long time. And up to now, I gave you a couple of examples on the slides, but if you think about the platform for, for work, for labor, Upwork, um, the, the workers don't pay anything, but the employers are going to pay something. It's a very common, common pattern. I even mentioned that in some cases, you even get negative prices at the case for, for, for card payments. Because there is no risk of arbitrage always attached to a transaction with a merchant, and the merchant is going to pay one, two, three, or four percent of the transaction when you pay by card. The second thing you have to know, um, if you want to understand those new industries, is that you have a winner-take-all phenomenon. So the winner-take-all phenomenon 
is basically that you have a tendency, not always, but you have a tendency toward concentration in the industry. So you have monopolies, probably more so than, than before, um, either because you, know, you have network externalities which are direct network externalities. I'm on Facebook because you're on Facebook. Okay? It may not be the case that Facebook is a better platform than the rivals, but simply that we are all on Facebook, so it makes sense to be on Facebook. Um, you know, if all the drivers are on Uber, then I, as a consumer, want to be on Uber and conversely. Um, this is not new. We all know that we might want to be in a city because there are, you know, amenities in the city. You know, so, uh, uh, sorry, that's, that's for the indirect externalities. Indirect externalities, sorry. The indirect externalities is simply that I don't care per se if you're on the platform, but... I like you to be on the platform because there will be more application for that platform. It will be a better platform. A better platform example might be Waze. So I don't know if, in, if you have Waze in Abu Dhabi, but Waze is basically the GPS navigation software app. And if you have no one on Waze, Waze the quality of Waze in terms of predicting traffic is very low. If you, if you do have uh, lots of people, then it it becomes, it becomes self-fulfilling because the quality is very good at predicting traffic and therefore people are on ways and, and therefore you want to be on ways. Okay? And this, that's where the analogy with the amenities in a city comes in. And the corollary of, of, of that is that you're going to get lots of monopolies or tight duopolies um, and firms are willing to lose money for a long time. That's the other consequence of that. The firms are willing to, I mean, you see it with Amazon, you see it with Uber, you see it with all of them. They can lose money for a long time. Of course, they need the financing in the meantime. Now, why don't we like monopolies? We don't like monopolies because market power is bad. It's bad because it, the monopolies charge high prices, so that reduces consumption. There's some kind of inefficiency. But it's also... Bad because the monopolists tend not to innovate. And there's a good reason for that, is that the monopoly has its own product at stake. So it doesn't want to cannibalize its own products. And finally, one of the reasons why it's bad is that there is no comparison, there is no benchmarking. So management tends to not to be pushed by competition very much. But let me come back to innovation because it's very important. If you look at monopolies that tend to innovate very little. And a case in point is Uber. If you look at what Uber has done in terms of innovations, in quote, it's very little. Everything already exists somewhere. Ratings, you know, geolocation, pre-registered credit card, um, and so on and so forth. And so forth, you know, all those innovations already existed. But the, the important point is that no taxi monopoly in the world had implemented those innovations, even though they were kind of trivial innovations. So that shows you something about the virtue of competition. Competition is extremely, extremely important. Now, let's think about the obstacles to competition. And that's because there's a big debate nowadays about competition policy in the new world. And I have to, to warn you, there is no clear answer 
so far. So what I will be doing is basically to give you some elements of thought about, about this issue. But let me just notice that multi-homing is actually an obstacle to monopolization. And not always, but it can be. What does multi-homing mean? It simply means that you are connected to multiple platforms. So, for example, you may have an American Express credit card and also a Visa debit card. So that means you are connected to multiple incompatible platforms. Okay? You may use Windows and you may use Linux. You know, you connect to multiple platforms. Now, sometimes multi-homing may be easy. It may be easy because it's easy to learn. That's not the case for Linux, but yeah. For using multiple debit cards, for example, it's not very hard. Um, and because it's cheap. So if the price is zero, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't cost very much to multi-home, at least in connecting to the platform. So you may be on Twitter, you may be on Facebook, you may be on WhatsApp and whatnot. It depends on the price. So multi-homing for, for credit and debit cards started in the U.S. in the early 90s when the no-fee cards were introduced. So, for example, and with very deep implication for the dynamics of industry, if you had an American Express card, you started having also a Visa card in your pocket because there was no yearly fee anymore. That depends also on how much you use. So for most of us, having only one console at home, either the Xbox or... Oh, the the PlayStation. You know, you you're not if you're not a big user, you're not going to buy multiple consoles. It's still expensive. But the serious video video game play, players, they will have more the Xbox and the PlayStation because they play they can play more games, for example. Um, now it's not because you're multi-homing uh, that actually you're using multiple platforms, and there are counterexamples. So, for example, you know. With Google, you can use Bing. Most, most of you have Bing on their, on their um, computers, but they may use only Google. Um, you know, you, you may be on Amazon, but there, there might be competitors as well on your computer, but you, you always use Amazon. Or, you know, you may be a customer of bookings. It's very easy to use Expedia or whatever, but you are going to just use booking all the time. And I'll come back to that because it's a very important point. Okay, so antitrust, and this is a big thing. So now everywhere in the world, there is this big issue. What do we do with the large tech companies? Everybody was in love with the tech companies until two years ago, but nowadays, because of taxation, because of privacy, but also because of market power, uh, people are getting upset with the big tech companies. And, and many, including economists, actually are calling for regulation as public utility or breaking up uh, Google and Facebook and so on and so forth. There, is also, there are also lots of calls to engage in industrial policy. I will be discussing that in the area of big data and AI. What are the merits of the various arguments? And, you know, how should we deal with that? Now, let me not tell you the answer right away, but uh, I don't think the solution will be all-style regulation. There are two things which have been proposed by a number of people. One is to say there are monopolies, they are like the old public utilities. You know, those 
companies which started being regulated in the US in the early 20th century, the railroad companies, the electricity companies, the telecom companies. And why don't we just apply public utility regulation to Google, Facebook, and all the others, at least the big ones? Now, if you remember what happened in the US um, in the early 20th century and what happened later on, there was basically some identification, at least of some essential facility. An essential facility is a segment which is very hard to duplicate for the competitors. It's just almost impossible. You may have competition on other segments, but for example, if you are railroad companies, railroad company, you know, you, what you can do is to maybe operate trains that you can do, but duplicate the railroad tracks and the stations is actually very difficult. Actually, one of the first Supreme Court cases on essential facility uh, was in the early 20th century, uh, and it was a railroad case uh, in St. Louis. Um, so you identify, at the very least, you identify an essential, essential facility, some segment where you cannot really have competition. Same thing if you want to compete in the electricity market, you cannot just build another high-voltage transmission line or system. It's just impossible. So those things have to be shared in some way if you want to have any competition. The problem with that is that how do you regulate those things? So the way it's done, more or less, is to try to understand what is the cost to the firm, maybe provide some incentive and come up with some kind of rate of return for the investment of the company. And that, as I said, is a long tradition, which is over one century old. But in this particular case, which is a digital economy, it's actually very hard to do for two reasons. The first reason, it's very hard to measure costs, because if you want to measure costs, including investment costs, you have to follow the firm over the life cycle of the firm, which, of course, we don't do. We haven't followed Google or Facebook since the start, which is pretty important, because if you think about it, how many firms have tried to be the Google or the Facebook? There have been many of them. So you will have to follow the firms from the start because only a few, a small number are successful. It's the same thing for drugs, by the way. You know, most of the drugs don't become blockbusters, they just die, right? So that's very difficult. The other difficulty is that those firms are global. And that's completely new because all the cases of regulation so far have been national. The national telecom companies, the national railroad companies, the national electricity company. But once you get global, that means that you have multiple regulators that don't share the information, they don't share, they don't cooperate. And it becomes extremely difficult to understand where the revenue are, where the costs are, and to coordinate on, on some kind of return regulation. It's not easy to break up those firms either. You know, it depends what you want to break them up for. I mean, if you have five Facebooks, for example, I don't think that you get more privacy than if you have one Facebook. I don't think that's going to happen. But if you want to break them up the way we broke up AT&T in 1984, or electricity systems or railroad systems, what you have to do is to 
identify the essential facility, the part which cannot be duplicated. Now, I apologize for those of you who have worked in the telecom industry or the railroad industry or the electricity industry, but by and large, the technology hasn't changed for a century. I mean, telecom now it has changed, of course, but you know, by and large, the technology is the same as a century ago. Now, if you think about the internet, uh, big tech, it's quite different. It's changing very fast. So I'm not saying it's bad to do it, but I just don't see a plan how to do it. How you are going to identify the essential facility, divest it, spin it off, and it usually takes at least three or four years, and then say, this is the essential facility and we're going to have competition everywhere else with a fair access. This is very difficult to do. And you have to say, what is the essential facility? So if you think about Google, is that the search engine? Is that the data? You know, you need a complete plan on what's to be done. So my gut feeling, and I may be completely wrong, but my gut feeling at this stage is that the best game in town is antitrust policy, competition policy. Now, we still, if I have time, I will discuss that briefly, but we still have to change competition policy. Because once the competition authorities, authorities decide, it's usually too late. It takes five, seven years to do something. At the age of the internet, you know, taking five or seven years to say Google is not fair with an entrant is just way too slow. Okay. And there are a number of new strategies which show up that we have to, to decide what to do with them. So if you talk to, to Google, for example, and all those firms, they say, oh, no, don't worry about monopoly because the market is contestable. Okay, so the key word is contestability. Contestability means that there is competition not in the market, so you may not have multiple Googles or multiple Facebooks, but you have competition for the market. So if Google doesn't innovate, if Google charges high prices, then that's going to imply that Google will be replaced. And theoretically, it's, it's right, which is contestable monopolies are okay. They may deliver good social welfare, as long as two conditions are satisfied. Um, they, those two conditions are first that the entrants can enter. And the second condition, which is not quite the same, is that they do enter. There's a distinction between the two. But the point is that if you have contestability, so if Google can be threatened by quick entry by others, then it's going to force Google actually to charge low prices for us to build more network societies, but also to innovate. And that's the idea. And in that case, it's not that bad. You, of course, don't get competition at a given point of time, but you get basically the threat of competition which keeps the incumbent on their toes. Let me make a few remarks about that. The first remark is that entry often concerns a niche segment. And actually, if you look at all the big firms, they all started very small, very specialized. Google started with a search engine. Amazon sold books online. And you know, all of them, Uber is starting with the taxi services, but of course, Uber is not valued what is valued because of taxi services, which are going to disappear anyway. 
as they stand, you know, the current ones, it's, the ambition is much, much larger, of course. What they do is that they, they are good at doing something and then they expand the product line. They leverage their, their name and, and their cash uh, toward uh, new product lines. But of course, it must be the case that entrants, if they are efficient, be able to enter at least a niche segment. And of course, there we are worried about bundling, which I mean, what the combat is basically tying various products together, loyalty rebates, and predation as barriers to niche entry. Okay, and that has given uh, rise to an above cases. So the startup case in the US and in Europe was a browser case. The younger people don't remember a Netscape browser. They may know Mozilla, which is an open source version, but the Netscape browser, which was a dominant browser and was replaced by Internet Explorer. That was a Microsoft case of the 90s and, and 2000. Um, more recently, it has been fines in Europe uh, against Google for abuse of dominance, uh, both with uh, search engine and with Android. Um, and there are many cases like that. The second thing, which is going to be very controversial, and let me spend some time on it. it you know, I told you it's very important that you can enter if you are an entrant, an efficient entrant, um, but that actually you also do enter, which is not the same thing, because more and more there is what we call, we economists call entry for buyout. Entry for buyout is that you, you, you produce something and then you go into the income and you say, why don't you buy me up? Because otherwise I'm going to compete with you. Okay? Why would the incumbent buy those startups? Well, to suppress competition, to make sure that their product diverge so they, they become different. Um, and there are some concerns, for example, that Facebook bought uh, Instagram and WhatsApp just for that reason. Instagram and WhatsApp are social networks, just like Facebook. They were not competing with Facebook, but they could have competed with Facebook. And that's the important thing. They could have competed. Sometimes the product may even be suppressed. So there's more and more empirical evidence that actually drug companies, big, the big pharma, actually buying uh, startups and then basically uh, don't go ahead with all the tests um, and the marketing of the molecules which have been developed by those startups. They are called killer acquisition and often those are molecules which are in the same domain, of course, as incumbents uh, uh, pharma. So they surprise competition in that case, in a very drastic way by even suppressing the product. Now, what the difficulty is that none of those mergers has even been blocked, even in Europe. I mean, the US, you would expect there is very little antitrust. The country of the antitrust, now there is no antitrust anymore, almost. But you know, even in Europe, where, which has been, become the, where antitrust is going on, there is none of those mergers has been even challenged. Why? Because if you want to challenge a merger, you have to prove it's anti-competitive. Okay? So you need data. You need data to show that actually there is some substitution between the products which are produced by the merging firms. However, 
This is actually very difficult to prove because competition hasn't taken place. Yet, WhatsApp and Instagram were not competing with Facebook. The startup, which is being sold to a big pharma, they haven't competed yet. Actually, the product hasn't been developed yet. So there is no evidence you can bring uh, to the court and show that actually the merger is anti-competitive. But of course, that raises an issue, which is that it gives an incentive for the incumbent firms to purchase their future competitors. And this is something we are going to have to deal with because there are two solutions. Either we let the antitrust authorities just use their gut feeling and we see it's not very satisfactory, or we let those big firms basically swallow up their future competitors and so much for contestability. So it's a difficult issue. I just wanted to raise it in front of you. Let me, I'll come back to privacy. And let me tell you a little bit about one of your worst friends, which is best price guarantees. I don't know if any of you has knows what uh, a most favored nation clause or best price guarantee is, but that's something which is used by every platform in the world nowadays almost, um, which is basically when the platform guarantees you that you're going to get the best price if you go through the platform. Sounds familiar? Um, and it sounds wonderful. It sounds absolutely wonderful as a consumer. Now, um, let me give you some examples. So I'm going to use the example of Booking.com. Um, not, I have nothing against Booking.com. It's, it's actually a very nice platform. Uh, but there have been a number of cases, but there have been cases with Amazon in, the, in Europe as well and others. So you have a platform, think of a platform as being Booking.com, and you have platform users, so say 20%, depends on the market, uh, of the people who are using OTA, online travel agencies are using booking.com. Um, and you are platform users, sorry, there is an arrow missing between the two. And you are using booking.com to basically book an hotel room in Abu Dhabi. Okay? So you come and, you know, and booking.com tells you, look, I can guarantee the best price uh, to you on the hotels in Abu Dhabi. Um, why? Simply because Booking.com tells the hotels, if you want to be listed on Booking.com, then you have to guarantee me your best price. You cannot charge a lower price. I don't want to see a lower price either on your own website or on Expedia or any other travel agency. Okay? And this is something that has existed for a long time. For example, for payment cards, there's this rule which is called the no surcharge rule, which basically guarantees that if you use your credit card or debit card, there won't be any surcharge, so you, the merchant cannot charge more for a card payment than for a check payment or card payment or, 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 or cash payment. Okay? Now, think about it. This sounds wonderful because you, you guaranteed the best price you get a good service on Booking.com, and you get almost hotel, hotel, all hotels on Booking.com. Okay, that sounds absolutely wonderful. So, as a consumer, you should be very happy, but you should think twice. Because 
once you are booking.com customer, there's no reason why you should multi-own. There's no reason whatsoever why you should go onto another platform or directly to the hotel website. So what's going to happen then is that a friend booking.com is going to see the hotel and say, look, I have 20% market share. Those 20% of the consumers are unique customers. That's the keyword. They are unique customers. If you want to reach them, you have to accept my terms and conditions because they use only my platform. And you'll never reach them if you don't, are not on my platform. And therefore, by the way, I'm going to take 25% of the price of your hotel room. Okay? 25%. So that's the first. And the hotel says yes, because the hotel knows that it won't be able to reach those consumers who are unique customers. Fine. What is the next step? And the next step becomes very interesting. Who is going to pay for those 25%? Maybe the Booking.com customers, but not quite. Actually, it's going to be every customer. Why? Because the price has to be unique. You cannot just raise a price to Booking.com customers to pass through the 25%. You have to raise all prices, including to those customers who don't use Booking.com. Okay? Which means... It's one of the rare cases where you can tax your rivals, you can tax your competitors. By the way, Expedia does the same, everybody does the same. But if Booking.com has 20% market share, that means 80% of the fee, 80% of the fee is going to be paid by people who don't use Booking.com. You can tax your rivals. And this is something that, uh, that has been used a lot and it will be used more and more. What do you think you have a personal assistant at home? I don't know if you have a personal assistant. You don't have Alexa or Google Home or whatever. You know. Well, simply because soon you'll say, Alexa, find me a doctor. Alexa, you know, get me a pizza. Alexa, whatever. And lo and behold, Alexa will take 25% from the doctor and 25% from the pizza pizza parlor and, so, and uh, pizza shop and so on. And, you know, you, that's what's going to happen. That's why they have those, uh, those things. And they also want to learn data about you, which is another thing we come back to. But, you know, it's actually a value proposition, which is actually pretty clear. Now, doesn't mean that uh, those uh, best price guarantees or most nation clauses are actually uh, entirely bad because they also solve some issues. Um, but let me... Let me just say, there have been cases in Europe, Booking.com, in Germany, in France. Actually, our current president, actually, when he was Minister of Finance, actually prohibited uh, those uh, most favored nation clauses. Um, there's been a, an Amazon case in a couple of countries as well. Um, but there have been mainly structural uh, remedies. So structural remedies is basically prohibiting those platforms from imposing most favored nation or best price guarantees. Um, we don't really have a criterion to say, oh, booking.com should be allowed to charge 12%, for example. We have no clue about that. We have done that with Jean-Charles Rocher. We, we, we have a rule for credit cards, which is very specific to credit cards, which was adopted by the European Union. 
but you know, by by and large, research has to be developed to know how we are going to regulate this. So actually, I'm not saying that most favored nation clauses or best price guarantees are entirely bad. They also serve other purposes that I don't have time to develop. But the point is that we have to deal with them. They are everywhere nowadays, and we need better tools, and you know, uh, we should do more research. So maybe at NYU Abu Dhabi, you're going to do the research that is going actually to, to contribute to guide our, our competition authorities with those things. Okay, let me... I want to talk a little bit about the other topics, so let me forget about this. Um, but we need also to change our institution, our antitrust institution, because... As I mentioned, they are too slow. They are way too slow, so we need to make progress with that. And that's not all. So, antitrust policy is actually very useful, but it's not going to solve this. Look at this picture. Those are the top 20 tech companies in the world. Uh, how many do you see outside the US and China? Zero. Zero. Um, there are actually, that tells you something about the future of industry. And this is tech companies. If you think about healthcare, you get a different picture. Actually, it's mainly the US, but Europe is still doing fine. If you think about what is going to be in 10 years from now with genetics and big data, the healthcare, I'm willing to bet, you know, in my book, Economics for the Common Good, I say we economists are terrible at predicting. But I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to, and I try to explain why, I'm willing to bet that, you know, healthcare will look like this in 10 or 20 years. 20 years is safer. You'll have forgotten by then what I told you. <laughs> but yeah, uh, why? Because they master completely big data nowadays. They have the tools, they have, they have the data. And, and then uh, genetics, they are doing very well. So we need much more than antitrust. We also need various institutions that, that are going to promote growth, and you know, all those are, are kind of, uh, of obvious. But you know, if you are an economy at the technological frontier, you need innovation, you need schools and universities, and I don't have to say that at NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, and you need actually something which is much more difficult than just saying we need you know, highly qualified people. Um, we need also to to change the teach, teaching, and that's much more difficult to do. You know, it's easy to say, okay, now you can find everything on Wikipedia and so on. We should emphasize knowledge less and creativity more. It's very easy to say. It's not that easy to do. And we need governance. And, you know, in many countries, uh, the governance, governance of universities is not, not great. And we need many other things that I won't have time to discuss, but it's a set of institutions. You know, it's just, you don't, you don't create... Silicon Valley or, or Kendall Square like this. It, it's just a big, big set of institutions that are uh, very important. Now, more and more, there are calls for industrial policy. And that's, that's of course, uh, something that, um, that is, is very fashionable nowadays, especially with populists, but not only with populists, actually. The mainstream people... Um, the liber liberal elite actually is more and more in favor of industrial policy in many countries. Um, let me just define industrial policy here. Um, it's not government intervention. Um, 
There are lots of non-targeted policies which are not industrial policies. They, they try to solve some market failure. Uh, so, for example, an R&D subsidy, we know that we have lots of evidence that there are lots of spillovers from R&D, lots of externalities. And the way it's being solved in practice is through R&D subsidies, but there is no picking winners. It's basically you give a subsidy for R&D across the board. Same thing for carbon price. So if you think about the cap and trade mechanism or carbon tax, is some kind of policy which is not industrial policy, which try to solve a market failure, but actually uh, does it in a very neutral way. Okay, you just, it's a Pigovian policy, as we say in economics. Industrial policy is more targeted towards specific sectors, technologies, or even companies. Um, and if you think about industrial policy, it's, it's actually, there are good arguments for that. There are cluster effects, the sharing of infrastructure, the sharing of information, you know, this famous story of Steve Jobs learning many of the Apple technologies from just being next to Xerox Park at dinner, you know, meeting people and having lots of ideas for what Apple could do with those technologies. I learned meaning by doing and And of course, the labor market is important too because, you know, Startups fail, and it's very important that you find a job in the same place if you can find a job in the same place. You have industry spillovers of public R&D. I will come back to that. And sometimes you want to reduce market power, and that's you know, being from Toulouse, working in Toulouse. Of course, that the, the story about Airbus uh, preventing a monopoly from exploiting the consumer, in that particular case, the airline companies, and if I, you know, the end consumers, of course. Um, But yet, it's fair to say that economists as a whole are very, very uh, worried about um, industrial policy. Uh, you know, there's the old uh, joke, the state picks winner, the loser picks the state, right? And, and we, in France, I'm afraid, have a lot of tradition of seeing that. I've been part of those commi committees and uh, commissions, I must say, it was pretty frightening. Uh, Partly because, uh, you know, people who do that tend to be incompetent. By the way, it's not that they are not bright. They can be very bright, but just completely uninformed. And sometimes they are captured, and we have lots of examples also of that in, in France. The, you know, one of the recent ones is the diesel subsidies, where there was, you know, Renault and Peugeot basically pushing uh, the state to subsidize heavily uh, engines, which were there, they were good at. Um, but we also have examples in which industrial policy seems to have worked pretty well. And DARPA, which is a defense agency in the U.S., has been pretty good at that. And we, in science, of course, we know about the NIH and NSF in the U.S. The European Research Council in, in Europe is, is working very well. Um, so that the issue, um, if you are interested in a topic, you know, I love this remark uh, four, five years ago. Joe Stiglitz and Danny Roderick were probably the most, the, the, the best proponents of uh, industrial policy and economics. Now there are a few others uh, who, who, who do interesting work as well. Um, we were arguing about industrial policy and Danny Roderick told me, look, and he was completely right. He said, you like it or you don't like it, but you'll get it anyway. So you be better make sure it's done in the right way. And he was completely right. And I think we are going to get it more and more, to be honest. Um, there are many recommendations, so if you read chapter 13 of Economics for the Common Good, a little 
advertisement. Uh, you'll see all those things which are kind of common, common sense things. Sorry, there's some duplication between five and six. That's what happens when you cut and, and paste. <laughs> but yeah, basically a number of things that you have to follow, in my view, if you want to do the right uh, industrial policy. I've seen some very, very bad ones. And I prefer not to have any if it's to do it this way. But there are also ways of doing industrial policy in the right way. So I just want to mention that. And of course, there's my conflict of interest, which is point eight, um, which I strongly believe in, but of course I'm not the best uh, judge for that. I continue. Okay, my, my boss says I can continue. Let me, let me continue. Let me say a few things about privacy and, and what we are concerned about and what should, we should be doing about. And then I will say a few things, a few last things about the labor market. And then we can open those topics, of course, for discussion. So let me skip that. Uh, the cons let me skip that. So data ownership nowadays um, is service for data um, arrangements. So you go to Google... You use Gmail, you use a search engine, YouTube, you may use a social network, some maps and so on. All that for free. You know? But of course, remember if the product is free, you are the product. And of course, Google and Facebook make a huge amount of money from uh, advertising from the other side of the market. Now, you know, lots of people agree it's not a great system. At the same time, Nobody has a right solution to it. So, it, you know, you might actually have no data collection. Sometimes it may be fine. But um, at the same time, data can be very useful for many different things. So, you know, you might throw the baby with a bathwater if you start saying, you know, the firms are not allowed to collect data. And don't expect them to be free in that case, by the way. Lots of people are saying maybe we should compensate users for the service. So if you look at the recent and very successful book by Glenn Weil and Eric Posner, Radical Markets, they mentioned that we should be paid as laborers because we give our data to platforms. Um, so that you will get the money in cash rather than in kind. Of course, it has to be policed in some way because you don't want to have a guinea gaming. Actually, there, there has been some attempt at paying people for their data. But of course, then, you know, you have to make sure they are real people. They are not bots who are going just to connect all the time and get the cash, right? Because, of course, the other side of the market is not very interested in that. Neither is Google or Facebook. Um, but there are difficulties with pricing of data. Uh, there are difficulties with knowing the value of your, of your data, knowing the cost to yourself, and I'll come back to that, and how those are affect, affected by exclusivity, portability, and so on. So those people say we need to have some kind of intermediary uh, who is going to guarantee the quality of data, but also are going to extract value on behalf of the consumers. But nobody has a clear plan on how to do it. And of course, there's a concern that you re be reintroducing another layer in between who will basically take a cut, of course. Some people have mentioned data trust, so public kind of uh, public good aspect where the data will be collected. 
which is an interesting idea as well. Uh, the question is which data, at what price, and so on and so forth. There are lots of different things. People have also mentioned some kind of friend arrangements. Those are for you, those of you who are engineers. You probably know standard setting processes in which when your patent is actually um, used in a, in a, in a standard, and a startup, a new startup, you have to pledge in most for most startup setting organization, you have to pledge to license at a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory price. Um, some people have have to have suggested that kind of, of thing as well. Now, again, we need to work more on that. This is the future of mankind. You know, all those topics I'm mentioning, and we don't have an answer to those questions. It's 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 pathetic. Um, but we need to work on that. Um, what are we concerned about? Actually, probably you have all made um, notice this disconnect between our behavior and our concerns, right? Personally, I'm very concerned about privacy. At the same time, I click. I never look. I click, I click, I click. And I give all the data about myself all the time. Um, and I'll try to come back to that because I think I'm not unusual in that respect. Um, and you know, according to the questionnaires, and I'm actually kind of a very ordinary person. Um, but you know, this disconnect between how we feel and actually how we act is very big. So let me just say what we are concerned about. One aspect is pricing policy, which is the fact that uh, those platforms, they know more and more everything about you and they can predict pretty well how much you are willing to pay for a good or service, you know, depending on your income, your location, your, your pre previous consumption pattern and so on. They know everything about you, so you can price discriminate in a very fine way, which means in the language of economics is that the consumer surplus may actually be reduced uh, substantially. There are a bunch of concerns about algorithmic fairness, which is based on, on previous data. But they're also concerned about the platform's behavior with respect to dissemination policies. In general, too much linkage. Sometimes it's maybe unknown to you, and that was the case of, of Facebook. But I must say, most of the time, you can be informed of that, actually, under GDPR in Europe. You are supposed to actually disclose when you're going to share the data with somebody else. Um, so it's uninformed. The issue is that it's uninformed because you just don't understand. I, as a consumer, absolutely don't understand what the consequences are going to be of my giving the data. And down the line, also, if it's shared with other operators and what's going to happen, what their policy is, and so on and so forth. And I must say, even, you know, it's like a science fiction thing. Even if you say, I'm not going to be connected anymore. I'm not going to share data with anyone. I'm going to click no every time. Those platforms still know a lot about you. Because they know your social graph. They know the emails of your friends. They know the phone conversation of your friends. They know everything about you. The pictures which are posted and so on. So they, they know actually, even if you're never connected, they know if you have an illness and so on. So actually, even, you know, there's no, no way you can completely escape. So that's, that's really an issue. And, um, and let, me, um, let me just say and come to what we are worried about. 
One big thing we are worried about is divisive issues. Religion, politics, sexuality, and so on, or traits which might be used uh, for uh, discrimination. So the European regulation on data, GDPR, for example, takes racial and ethnic information as sensitive. Um, we are worried about that because indelicate, indelicate employers, colleagues, blackmailers, governments more and more can use those data actually to, to hurt you. Um, we'll get a social credit score. Now it's, it's being used only in, or it's going to be used only in China, but yeah, there's a fair bet that it's going to be used in many other countries once other countries have the technology in which our life won't be segmented into multiple subdomains, but it's going to be broad. broad broadly, we'll have a reputation. There will be breakdown of insurance. I think what the current president of the U.S. just doesn't realize is that one of the most unfair things is that when you don't get health insurance against illnesses you have no responsibility for, like cancer and other illnesses. But of course, you know, Discrimination already exists and it's going to exist more and more with big data and genetics because they can, those platforms can predict exactly what your healthcare condition will be. Um, the right to be forgotten is a basic principle in law, which says, you know, if you do some misdeed, if you commit some misdeed, you pay for it and then you start with a clean slate. It's not a random principle of law, it's an incentive principle. Because if you don't start with a clean slate, often you're uh, condemned to actually a life of crime. Um, it's just efficient to have it this way. Of course, with the internet, it becomes very difficult and so on and so forth. And just on this issue, let me just make a case, a call for regulation. And you're going to think I'm a crazy Frenchman, but uh, I, I think, you know, we have GDPR now. By the way, I, I failed to mention that GDPR, Google and Facebook love GDPR because it makes it more difficult to share data. And they have lots of data and they don't share them. So actually, it's going to protect their... Um, it's well-meaning, but it's going to protect their incumbency position. But the thing I want to, to react about, and let me not be too critical about GDPR because the Europeans were the first to do it. They were the first to realize there is an issue and we need to do something. But, you know, don't expect too much from GDPR. And I was telling you that I click all the time. You know, I go to many websites. I want to find Hervé's latest paper. And, of course, you know, there is this thing. That I'm sure I know why you would have says You have to accept those conditions. And you know, I click. I don't even look. Uh, by the way, not why you would have it. But if you look at those websites and you click, it's, it's completely opaque. Of course, it's inten intentional. It's completely opaque. It's very hard to actually understand what's going to happen with the data. And if it's shared with other people, you know, it's shared with 200 companies, you don't even know their name, and you don't know their policies, and so on and so forth. It's just hopeless. That's why I click all the time, even so I'm concerned. Uh, I just don't have time. And just let me give you an analogy. Do I regulate my own bank? The answer is no. I will have to go every night and spend the night studying the balance sheet and off-balance sheet activities of my bank, assuming I'm competent enough to do that, assuming at the time, uh, it's totally impossible. 
when I go to a restaurant, do I, do I check, the, you know, along the food chain, the safety of my food? The answer is not. That would be totally inefficient. Assuming we are competent, we are not even competent to do that. So we need same thing, you know, just in terms of data privacy. I think we need maybe some libertarian paternalism or something like that. I would like to have some standardized option which are viral and are going to protect me. I, should, I will understand what those options are. Maybe a menu of two or three because we have different tastes with respect to privacy. Now, there could be other policies which are offered, but at least to have some policies I could choose, which actually uh, I will understand, right? And that's, that's something that I think will be very helpful. Now, we could have a discussion about who will do that. It's not easy. But I think the current status quo is, is terrible. And we have to way, go way, way beyond GDPR. Um, let me conclude uh, five, ten minutes. Okay, it's tough, uh, tough chairman. Um, the future, let me just say a few, a few things. There are two basic issues with the future of labor. I'm not a labor economist, so I've worked on some in labor. But, you know, the first is, is the labor environment to be the same as the one we knew before with those platforms? And by the way, I mean, it's not that big right now. It's 15% in the U.S., the alternative work arrangements. Um, and there are good reason, I think, to think it's going to grow, but it's not going to take over salaried work. And, uh, you know, again, if, you, if you're interested, you can look at the economics for the common good uh, for the arguments. Um, one thing you... I think we have to escape is this distinction between salaried work and independent work. You know, there are big debates all over the world nowadays about is Uber a driver, Uber driver, an employee or independent worker? And I think we can spend the next century to try to argue about it because the answer is that a Uber driver is both salaried and independent depending on the dimension you look at. So it, it's just a hopeless debate. And, you know, we economists, or we social scientists more generally, we don't have to take a stance on what the optimal organizational form is. What we want to do is to try to help people um, to actually find the best way for themselves and create some level playing field. It seems obvious to me that the Uber driver should have the same rights and the same obligations, social security and the like, as a taxi driver. But, you know, whether Uber is better than a taxi company, it's not up to me to decide. But the second thing is, which is the main thing nowadays, is that it's at the end of, of labor. Um, that's, I was going to say, that makes an economist smile. Um, but you'll, you'll see in the next slide, it's not quite the case. In the last two centuries, we have had a lot of technological progress. The Luddites revolted uh, in the early 19th century, uh, England, uh, in the 60s, everybody was worried about automation. Of course, nowadays with the big data, um, we are all worried about that. Um, now, there are two polar, two polar uh, stances which I think are un unwarranted. The first is to, do, to say, once again, jobs will disappear. And you know, some top minds in economics actually actually said that repeatedly. 
from Keynes to, to Albert Simon to Minsky. They all said, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, there won't be a job. <laughs> you, know, you smile. You know, we will all, all be unemployed, of course. It's always the case that automation is going to destroy jobs. New jobs are created elsewhere uh, for many reasons. But we should not, that's a pessimistic view. We should not also be too optimistic because, uh, the, you know, the view that there will always be jobs completely forgets the fact that things are going faster and faster. And many, many jobs will be suppressed. We don't know what's going to be surprised, by the way. I, I admire the people who make forecasts about that because it's very hard to know because we don't know what the technological progress is going to be. But there will be a huge displacement of, um, of, um, of jobs. Um, we don't know very much. And, uh, you know, the, we know a little bit about robots, for example, what has happened, uh, things which are linked with demographics, um, so, you know, the countries which have young people actually have few robots like, like the U.S. or France, whereas the aging countries like Japan, Germany, and South Korea are actually using lots of robots because they don't have the young people who are going to operate and do difficult tasks. Um, but, you know, is that, is that a good study for the thing? One thing is sure is that every job is threatened. And, you know, if you, if you think about job at risk... Um, you know, think about cancer specialists like skin cancer or retinal cancer or so on. You know, in a few years, and those are extremely, extremely high-skilled people, and you cannot imagine higher skill. But, you know, they may be without jobs in a few years because algorithms do that better. And, you know, that, that's, that's really an issue. So you, you'll have a lot of frustration from many people, both on skill. Of course, the unskilled are the most threatened, but, you know, the skilled people also are very threatened. So what's going to happen? Um, one of the big issues we don't know is you know, what kind of job is going to, to be displaced. So the startup thing is routine tasks are going to be displaced, but tasks re which require human common sense and adaptability and emotion and whatnot is not going, is not going to disappear. Who knows? With machine learning, more and more you can actually duplicate the job and the behavior of a human being, right? When you have enough data, you can anticipate many, many different situations and maybe leave a couple of very bizarre situations to, to a human, but you know, by and large, you can duplicate what most humans do. At least that will be the case in 10 years from now. So there is a big issue on this. And of course, that's an issue we as teachers face because how do we... How do we teach our students? You know, what, what, do, what should they learn? It's, it's actually a complicated thing. So the end of labor is not the issue. The end of labor is not the issue. There will always be jobs. Um, but the issue is, will those jobs be attractive to workers, including income-wise? Okay? So if, if you are a skin cancer today, a specialist, you're, you are very well paid. But if you are replaced by an algorithm... It's going to be to be difficult, right? Um, and there is also an international aspect to it. I showed you the top twenty tech companies in the world. They're all in they're all in two countries. They are the countries which are creating the wealth, and that's going to be a big issue in the years to come. I think there, there are many things, and the losers. And we see with the populist movement, the losers, of course 
of the globalization, but I would say more of the technology. Globalization is just one thing. The biggest thing is the technology. Of course, they are unhappy because if the new jobs are created, they are in different fields and different regions. So it's, it's kind of difficult for them. And that raises a lot of different issues having to do with inequality, uh, having to do with international order and so on. And, you know, I don't have to, to, to say more, much more about this. So let me, let me stop here and, and just say, you know, we are going to be in a completely different world and we have to prepare for that. And we are not prepared, certainly not the politicians. Uh, even academics, we are not prepared enough, to be honest. And we, we have to accept that. We, we have to improve uh, our knowledge on what's going to happen. We have to anticipate more in our research topics. Uh, but, you know, there are also huge opportunities, you know, they, which, are, which are there. We can be much wealthier, much healthier. Um, we can reduce inequality. I know my prediction is that it's going to increase, but we can reduce it. I mean, just think about a medical wasteland, which is a big issue in many countries. You know, nowadays with IT, you can actually reduce uh, inequality which come from different locations. This, you know, cultural wasteland also is, is also uh, something that can be reduced somewhat. I was very happy to see the Louvre this morning, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but, you know, there are things you, you can get through internet technologies, of course. And governance is very important. That's, that's one of the things which, you know, we social scientists can emphasize quite a lot, is how to transition and how to have the right governance uh, for, uh, for the future. Okay, let me thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.